Hello, welcome to IntelliCast. This is Season 3, Episode 31, and this kicks off our Thought Leadership series. Well, sort of. We'll talk about that in a second. This episode of IntelliCast is brought to you by IntelliCast at emi-rs.com. Um, that's how you reach us if you'd like to give us some feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, emi underscore research, or IntelliCast1. You can leave us a voicemail or text, 513 513- Four zero one five four six three. We have had a couple, and we appreciate the feedback. We'll probably talk about that in an upcoming episode. And also, hey, rate and review us. Um, that'd be great, too. So as I mentioned in the opening, this is our Thought Leadership Series, and Andrew DeSillis is joining us today. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Brian's. Good to be here. Yeah. And Producer Brian, as always, is here. Um, Hello. And this is, I guess, I'll, we'll call it the continuing of our Thought Leadership Series. Um, recently, we've had kind of some industry thought leaders, um, Chris Fisher from KSNR, Vignesh Christian from Sample Chain, and this is going to be Terry Crawford from MR Research, MMR Research Associates. He's the VP of Research Operations, and we're excited to have him on today. Any thoughts on the thought leadership series, guys? Yeah, you know, we always the, – the purpose of the podcast is to be a little bit of a thought leader, right? And IntelliCast is – always been a great combination of both discussing research topics as well as discussing current events and, of course, having a little bit of fun. Um, but our intention, you know, in, in kind of saying we're doing a thought leadership series is to have a series of podcasts where we're talking with really experienced industry leaders. Um, and it's really just kind of, you know, cutting out a little bit of that current event part and having a higher level conversation specifically around um, some really pertinent topics. You know, most of these that we're going to be doing um, will revolve around sample quality or have a sample quality component to them. Um, when we're talking with Terry today, we're kind of discussing at a high level what sample quality means to him. And most interestingly, you know, what are the factors that go into overall sample quality? And then specifically, where does the ownership for sample quality and data quality lie. Um, you know, I'm excited. We're going to be talking to some specific vertical experts in upcoming episodes, discussing healthcare research and quality there, discussing B2B research and what does that look like. Um, and I just think it's going to be a really great opportunity to, you know, I don't want to say take a break because the current events are very, very important, but to just set aside some focused time to discuss what we can be doing, what we are doing, and what we can do better as an industry as it pertains to online quant. Well said, Andrew DeSellis. Look, look at that, Brian. What do you think of that? I don't really think I got anything to add there. He kind of took the wind out of my sails. <laughs> I know, me too. It's well said, uh, perfectly said guy talking sales guy talking <laughs> off the cuff <laughs> no i agree with you andrew it's, it's good to just kind of focus and one thing that i learned in this interview is that i don't know how long it was i think it was about 40 minutes the interview itself but we, we barely scratched the surface on data quality like you know we talked pretty high level um the conversation kind of took turns twists and turns as you'd expect any data quality conversation to go um so i think if you are newer to sample, um, if you're a sample buyer, if you are in charge of determining what sample goes to your surveys, it's probably worth your listen because Terry Crawford is someone I 
have a lot of respect for. He has a heritage in Burke, so that's in the 80s, I think. He's been working at Burke for, he worked at Burke a while ago, and now he's the VP of Research Operations at MMR Research. And I just have a lot of respect for him because of his operational background. He says in an interview, he's done pretty much every task in research. And that really, similar to the Zogbee interviews where the context is key to your insights, same thing for Terry. He knows how to design a survey. He has a lot of questionnaire back, questionnaire design background. He's worked in data processing. He's worked in coding. He's kind of done it all. And that really shapes who he is when he thinks about data quality. And so he's been in research for a while. And, you know, his background reminded me a little bit of myself. And so I love the interview. I love the conversation. Um, that's any highlights from you, Andrew or Brian? I'm curious to hear Brian Peterson's highlights before I take the wind out of the <laughs> Okay. Okay. No, I think it was a really good conversation. It it wasn't just sticky. He didn't just stick with one way of determining data quality. He gave multiple different ways of how they measure data quality or how to ensure it, as well as the ownership piece. Um, I think a lot of times people think it falls only on one party that, oh, the sample provider, you own the data quality. I'm just here to get the opinions. You should manage that piece. But really it's, as Terry kind of got into, it's it falls with both parties and it's a kind of a team effort to ensure you have that data quality and that's who owns it. I agree. All right, Andrew, take it away. What are your thoughts? <laughs> no, you know, I think that was definitely, you know, the most interesting part for me. And it's something that because of our relationship with MMR and specifically my relationship with Terry um, as his sample provider, and he is one of my clients, that was what I was most interested to talk about. And, you know, I, I was half expecting him to say, well, you are the sample provider. The ownership is on you. And instead, we ended up talking about, you know, a dozen different things that go into sample quality and all of the different people who are involved in making sure that we have sound research. Um, and it was just, you know, I, I hate to not provide a specific highlight and say I think the whole thing was a highlight, but just, you know, especially the way that, it, you know, he brought it all back to, hey, by the way, everything we've been talking about this whole time everyone has to own their piece. Um, that was that was the highlight for me, for sure. Cool. Well, let's get into it. Um, let's hear the interview with Terry Crawford talking about data quality. He is the Vice President of Research Operations at MMR Research Associates. Joining us now, I'm really excited to have Terry Crawford. He is the Vice President of Research Operations at MMR Research Associates. Hey, Terry, how you doing? I'm doing good, and thanks for having me on. I, I can honestly say this is my first podcast, so uh, oh. being on and listening to, so this is a first in all uh, in oh, all it's, aspects. It's going to change your life. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> set, set the bar low, Terry. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> We're just going to talk research. Um, well, we'll get to know you a little bit better as well, and. Um, you know, a lot of times we start off, and by the way, Andrew DeSolis is joining us as well. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Brian and Terry. Hello. <laughs> Good to um, be here. Excited to be here again. Yeah. Andrew, well, this is like what? This has got to be about your fifth or sixth time. I think so. I, I may be one of the most frequent uh, EMI guest participants at this point. Right. We typically start off with getting your background, and those in the Cincinnati area kind of know who you are, but... Maybe just give a brief background of um, your history and research and your, maybe yeah. your career as well. 
Absolutely. And uh, so I actually started in research uh, at Burke Marketing Research, and I was there for five years. I was in the late 80s. And um, from there, I moved on to a company and it was, uh, uh, you know, I didn't think much of it at the time, but uh, I joined a company called Alliance Research. And it's a shame that Alliance isn't well known today because uh, I think that was, uh, will probably be the best job that I've ever had. It was this great... Oh, wow. Uh, so it was a startup, some guy, he worked in Indianapolis and actually the good story about him is that he eventually wound up, he loved baseball and when he sold the company, he wound up owning the Florence Freedom. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so it was kind of cool, but, uh, he was a visionary. He was really great. He was a visionary. We, uh, actually we jumped into online research very early, different technologies. Uh, we really, I would say mostly pioneered there. It was a great company and, uh, it gave me uh, a lot of learning. I had the opportunity to basically create the operations, you know, like the the operations for the company, the way that the company developed. It was a great, uh, it was a great experience. Uh, and then I was there for 15 years and I moved to Atlanta and am now working for MMR Research. I'm still in do operations. And I would say the most interesting part for me of being in research is I've actually had the experience of working in every single department in marketing research. I've been in, in I've been in analytical. I used to be a project director at one time. I, I wrote questionnaires full time. I actually, I always used to say I wasn't in accounting, but I actually dabbled in accounting for a little while. I wanted MMR too. So, but I always, uh, but I always come back to operations just because for me, it's kind of where it starts. And it's the, for me, it's kind of like the crux of, of what we do, uh, because without that portion, I think everything else then becomes, uh, pointless. So or not pointless, but yeah, uh, you really have to have a good data collection foundation in order to have good research. I completely agree. And I, I kind of have a little bit of a similar story that I did everything in research as well. I was in coding and data entry, and I did some data processing and quantitative and qual, and I was a telephone interviewer. And it really shaped me. And I've told this story multiple times, but it shaped me as a researcher. And I think I think it really builds well-rounded researchers when you have all of those roles and you develop kind of an empathy for, especially if you've done all the operations side, that's, that's awesome. I bet that's really shaped your career. It has. And, and I, and I have to say it's uh it's, it's something where I was quite lucky to do that. It's uh, not many people. I mean, usually you go into research, you start in a certain position and you might be promoted up into different things. But right. typically you're not jumping from, you know, like place to place to place. And for me, it gave me a real appreciation and a lot of empathy, I think even more so for all the different roles and all the different, you know, the, all, all the different pieces that go into uh, making a successful research project. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing too, uh, but when we're talking about your history, something that I definitely don't want to gloss over, you were actually one of EMI's first clients back when we were EasyMail Interactive years and years and years and years ago. You know, when I was in, I think, you know, in, in elementary school, you were actually working <laughs> in a different role. So what, what was that like? What was EMI of... of uh, days gone by. Tell, tell us about that. That's just so well, honest. 
I, I, yeah, I'll tell you, honestly, the, the thing is, at that point, it really was the Wild West of online research at that point. You know, everybody knew the telephone was kind of, and I hate saying dying, but when I say dying, I'm just saying telephone is not now the monster that it used to be. I mean, it, it's still being done, but obviously online now is the, uh, the darling of research. And uh, so at that time, it really was the Wild West. And so... People were, and I can't say that we were doing great research either. Uh, people were taking uh, like respondents from anywhere because everyone was so desperate and so eager to get into that online environment. And but anyway, so one of uh, you know like the the greenfields of the world uh, hadn't yet been born, so you were constantly trying to find online resources. And actually, email was fairly new as well, or at least the broad use of email was uh, fairly new. And uh, so one of the places that we found, and it was local because I was working in Northern Kentucky at the time, uh, was through someone that I worked with said, hey, my cousin, you know, has like this place that they, they do, you know, called Easy Mail. And, uh, you know, they do mass mailings, et cetera. And at that time, mass mailings weren't the, the like the horrible thing that they are uh, now. And so, yeah, we, we got contact with Mike and the, we used him uh, as a sample source for a very long time. And, and I think, as Mike will tell you, I don't think any of us are really proud of the research we did then in retrospect, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, it all seemed to work out. So, yeah. It was, it was certainly the Wild West, but kind of that internet area before panels had a lot of like quality structure around them, right? I worked at Paris Interactive in 2000. We were just building that at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was really crazy. But I, and the thing is, it really was, I mean, we all uh, lived through these trends, right? And, uh, or these, uh, a trend is probably not the, uh, the right idea. I mean, online research was like, it was like the market research hula hoop of the late 90s and early 2000s, right? It was like, it was a, not necessarily a fad, but I mean, everybody was so desperate to do it. Everybody wanted to do it that you just, kind of jumped in, clients were pushing it. And yeah, it did take some time for us to get to the point where, you know, we actually made something of a science of it. Um, so part of your role now, I think you work in, in sample quality a little bit, right? Is, is that I true? Do. I would say that's part of the job. So um, when I came to MMR, uh, we, we have a fairly unique uh, structure in research. For the most part, we just do design and analysis. And so Anything else is contracted out, and um, and I might just get us in trouble by saying that. But anyway, <laughs> I think everybody knows that. But uh, um, uh, but yeah, so uh, sample quality. I, I would say um, <sighs> to me, uh, a sample quality is the crux of research, and and, the, and so we get heavily involved in that because. If you don't have good sample, if your respondents aren't good, if the you know the the way the representation of that uh, of the sample, uh, it, you're not going to have good data. And so it's extremely important to have a really good or really good a single really good source or multiple good sample sources in order to have good research. And so, yeah, so that's why I'm heavily involved in, in that aspect of the business. Okay. And, you know, I'd love to talk to you about sample quality. That's something that we're 
trying to talk to our guests more often about is, and by the way, it's very subjective. Uh, what you might think is sample quality is different than what I might, I might think. And what we could probably ask 50 people and it's different. And that's both the, the beauty and kind of the curse. I think exactly, sure. research. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to kind of hear maybe just top level, like what, where does good data come from when you're thinking about good quality? So that's a great question because as you said, it's subjective, but, um, it's subjective because, but how do I say this? There still has to be some science in it. It's just that with online research and with any research, you just have to know what your biases are going in, right? I mean, uh, you know, when uh, telephone research was around, you had lines were fully open and, you know, you could call any household and you knew that you would get a broad range of respondents by doing that. Now, not everyone would participate, but everyone had the opportunity to participate. Then things came in such as caller ID and things like that. And sample companies had to adjust and say, okay, we're just going to create sample in order to get around like these people who are no longer listed in directories, you know, who aren't taking calls. We're going to plus one, a known number. And, you know, that will then brought in that that's our way of getting around that. So you have to adjust to your biases and with online, you know, we go into things uh, knowing, okay, for the most part, online samples are going to be representative of little higher income. It is probably going to skew suburban, things like that, uh, as we know, it definitely skews female. And you know what biases you have, so then you just find a way to work around those biases and what's right for a particular project. So I would say what makes good research is knowing, you know, having a very firm idea of the type of respondent that you're looking for. And that's something you set up with the client and then trying to work with what you get and you work around those biases. And I think that's the best way to, to conduct research now in an online environment. Okay. Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that that's key, right? I mean, for, like if, if I back, if I take off my sample hat and sort of just back up into it, like a statistical level, right? You know, if the sample itself is not representative of the audience that we're trying to research, then all of the results are kind of null and void. Right? Exactly. Um, but what, what you're saying, you know, makes exact sense that, you know, we can't, say something, you know, let's say we're testing the concept for a, a, a dress or um, a, a bow or something like that. And then we find out that we, you know, we're only surveying people who had subscribed to um, Wrangler magazine or something like that, you know, just, and, and so it could be totally off if you don't know who the target audience is um or you know if it's for aarp and we were surveying people who are 20 years old but i think it goes beyond the you know just sort of the the demographic biases as well and, and when you get into the design of a questionnaire and you're thinking about like the screening questions right and you think about the different targeting that we have available, you know, what, who are we giving the opportunity to even screen out? And I'm getting a little bit technical right now. Um, but what I'm trying to drive at is beyond the demographic biases, what are things that 
you do or that you look for to make to make sure that you're talking to the right people? Yeah, that's a you know that's a great question, and what you said is actually a very good point. I mean, if you are only interviewing people who subscribe to a certain type of magazine, yeah, I mean, you might as well just forget your data. Um, it's uh, it's uh, I mean, it's just going to be bad. But the thing is, I would you know what we look for is we look for a sample source, and obviously we rely on folks like you to provide this. Uh, one that is drawn from multiple sources, because the more diverse uh, you can make the pool of sample, the more likely you are to have a more valid picture of, uh, of whatever population you're interviewing. In this case, we'll say, for example, like the United States, the more sources that you draw from in order to create your panel, the more diverse that, that group is going to be and more likely to be reflective of the entire population. And I think that's really what we look for is people who are pulling in multiple sources from many different areas. Uh, some we know are better than others in order to add to that diversity. And so that might also not, well, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth. So this is a question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you would also be looking for then, I would think, not just diversity of sources from the sense of, hey, we're aggregating multiple panels, right? Like a, a marketplace or a platform. Um, but you're actually looking for, um, you know, companies that have like diverse panels, like the panels themselves are different. Um, and people who are perhaps recruiting in, in different ways, right? You know, we all know that the legacy research now panels were built from uh, Hilton Rewards and American Airlines. And then there are other panels that, you know, are recruited from Facebook and perhaps others that are recruited, you know, um, by invite only in, in, in various methods like that. So when you're trying to mitigate the inherent bias of we're only surveying people who take online surveys, right? You're actually looking for a diversity of recruiting methods as well is what I, what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's true. But uh, but also I think something that you said we we kind of have to address. I mean, I always say this to people is that when you go into an online survey, you have to know who you are what your population is. It's it, it is it is the rare panel that has a because I mean in research you're never going to be able to say, you know, to give a client like a for a general pop survey, a $500 CPI. And in reality, you know, a 500 to build a panel that covers all demographic groups, all income group levels uh, is it has like a nice, you know, mix of male, female, the ages are perfect, etc. To build that isn't going to be incredibly expensive. And to build it right, I should say, is going to be incredibly expensive while still maintaining that online presence, right? Because you're, you know, in order to get some groups in there, you're going to have to provide them with internet access. You're going to have to provide them with, you know, the tools needed to do research. So we know that we will never be able to get a true representative sample. Uh, you know, so when you go into a, an online survey, you have to know that you know, you're, you're probably not going to represent households 
you know, like a lot of rural households. You're not going to be representing a lot of lower income households. And, you know, you have to go in there with that in mind. And you and so then when you are saying, OK, these are the people that I think we should interview, you have to know who's being excluded. And as a client, you have to be OK with that. And I don't think I necessarily answered your question, but I think it's important that we'll never in research. We will never unless we do door to door again, we will never be able to offer a, a, a truly representative sample. It's just not possible in, our, in, in, this, in the world today. I think that's a good point, Terry. I agree with you. I think that all the things that I try to do when I'm advising clients and probably what you're trying to do is to minimize the risk as best and you can. That's the best way to put it. And Absolutely. Yes. It's not going to be perfect. Data quality is never perfect. Your sampling frame is never perfect. You can always poke holes in pretty much anything you do, <laughs> unfortunately. And, you know, but some of us will do it better than others. And so maybe the way that you design a questionnaire and think about data quality, you know, you're a 99% score and, but somebody, your competitors might be an, you know, an 87% score, right? That's how I think about it is that we're all doing the best we can with, you know, we're dealing with human beings taking surveys. Well, at least most of the time we're dealing with human beings taking surveys. And, um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's so much margin of error. Exactly. Well, not just that, but I mean, we also have to keep in mind it's, yeah, you know, we're dealing with human beings. But we're not really actually asking for factual data either, right? We're asking for opinion data, yeah. which could change from moment to moment. And, uh, and that's also something that, you know, we, we have to keep in mind. I mean, it is, uh, I, think, I think what we do gives a very good idea of the prevailing uh, mood, et cetera, what, you know, the, the prevailing attitudes of the country at that time or wherever we're surveying. But it, it certainly is not. You know, and as, and especially in the world we live in, things change so rapidly now. I mean, they absolutely change so rapidly. And uh, so, you know, things could change, you know, opinions change just as rapidly. And uh, and I think that's something else we have to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I know my opinion changes, especially during this period of time. I mean, moment <laughs> to moment. Exactly. Honestly. Depending on if I've been quarantined too long, if I'm the news story that comes out, if I read a tweet that upsets me. And so, and I think about it too, that like when I'm evaluating data quality or like a data set, probably what you do, my mood might, de might determine <laughs> who I allow into the, further, into the data set, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what are the kind of, what are the big things that you look for when you're evaluating sample quality? Do you have a couple of, uh, I've heard speeders, you know, there are um, straight liners and there's a million different things we could talk about. But do you have kind of a go to preferred thing that you look at? Um, so we look at multiple things. I mean, uh, speeders, I actually work with somebody who I have never seen anyone's mind work that fast in my life. And I'm not kidding. Yep. She can literally be talking to you on the phone and like having a just a, a like a, an in-depth conversation and writing a separate email at the same time. I mean, her mind just works like that. I couldn't do it. I have to focus on like a single thing. She can actually focus on two things at a time and do them each perfectly well. And so the thing is, I always tell her, it's like, look, if you ever do it, you would be flagged as a speeder so quickly on a survey because you know exactly what, you know, is being asked, you know exactly how to answer. I mean, it's amazing. Anyway, uh, we do look at speeders, uh, of course. We do look at open-end quality. And I have to say with that, you really need to think about uh, the open-end quality because quite, off, 
quite often and honestly. You know, uh, you see the degradation in open ends depending on how many you have, as well as like the overall interest level of the, the survey. You know, I mean, you're going to get far better open ends when you are uh, talking to an early adopter of some cool technology than you would get from someone who's talking about uh, wearing Blender. Yeah. You know, it just isn't, uh, you know, I mean, it's just going to be different. So you really have to look at uh, what you're doing there. I think the, the things that we, you know, that we best have, uh, that we are the tools that we would be best to use. Uh, you can put traps into a survey, right? I, I like, I personally like logic traps. Uh, I wish we use them more, meaning that, you know, where you put something in where on this uh, question, it, you can only, as like if you are a certain way, you can only answer this question positively. And if you are that same person, you can only answer this question negatively because the question, you know, is like polar opposites just worded differently. I like things like that. I think that's a good way to catch if somebody's actually really paying attention without like right. grabbing their attention that, hey, I'm looking at this. Because the thing is, I, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to go off topic here, but, you know, a lot of people say we put in logic traps and things like that. The thing is, so we put in the same logic traps, right? You know, like you're going through a, an open end or, or through a, you know, a series of attributes and it says, oh, I'll put a five in here. You know, people just get used to seeing that. Some people actually, uh, my old company, we used to do research on research. They actually would get offended by that because if you're a respondent takes your, you know, a survey seriously and you're seeing somebody put something like that and they're like, what, you don't trust me? I, they, they do. They get really offended by that. But I think if you do more subtle things, as I mentioned, like a, something that reads logically, you change it fairly often in surveys. I think those are the ones that actually work the best. And open ends do honestly work. It's uh, it's really interesting sometimes what you see in open ends and 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 sometimes the most surprising things come out. And uh, we've we've stopped using uh, certain sampling sources simply because of things that were uh, said in the open ends. So I would say that is a big thing for us as well. But personally, I like the logic traps. Yeah, I like I like the logic traps as well. And you know, I've I've tested all kinds of different things. And to your, you made a point that sometimes people are offended by the question you ask. I think that's a big case of today that, you know, I, and I've done this myself. I'm not criticizing anybody in particular. I think as an industry, we do this is I've asked the question, hey, what color is the sky? Is it blue or pink or yellow? <laughs> um, I've asked, what's two plus two? And my latest is, have you been to the moon in the past 30 days? And I don't, then I'm like, well, I don't know if I should remove them because maybe they're just kind of being a jerk. Like, I'm going to ask you 50 questions about a paper towel and then I'm going to ask you, went to the moon? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So we've kind of gone too far in that direction in many ways. But the, to, to your point around the logic checks, I do that. I find those to be really, if you can subtly do some logic checks and test their engagement, that's a really good way. And I completely agree with the open ends, but... It's like anything else in research, it, it depends. I told a client once that my preferred method of evaluating data quality is open ends, and I think they put in nine open ends. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you go too far the other direction. Like, yeah, <laughs> open ends are the best, but by that third open end, people are really tired of it. And so, yeah, I could, yeah, I like the way you think about it. And it's it's just, it, it depends. It's, it's so many times the answer. Yeah, you know what? And you can do it pretty easily too, especially if you have attributes because, you know, you can put, you know, like just choose an attribute and, you know, 
uh, say something like, you know, has a great orange taste and, you know, or something like that. And, you know, on a one to five scale and then has no orange taste at all. I mean, it's pretty easy to do something like that and blend it in naturally with the survey. But I, now going, uh, I, I have to kind of expand on my what I said, though. I mean, we use multiple things and we, we kind of multiple traps, I would say, or data quality points. Uh, and we kind of assign people a score. A lot of this is done uh, automatically. And I would like, and I say we do it, obviously someone does it for us. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I also like that too, because that way you're looking at many things. You're not just looking at, okay, this has a bad open end. Uh, you know, it, it's... Uh, I think that really is the best way. But again, if I had to choose a favorite, I like the logic track. Okay. And, uh, you know, I agree with you that you mentioned that um, looking at a lot of different things and getting a scoring system, that's that's my preferred method as well, is multiple. There should be multiple ways to evaluate the data quality. And when I do it myself, I sort by length of interview. And usually if you're the fastest, you have other data quality fails. And I, by the way, I completely agree with your point on the speeders. I know people that do things so fast and I, I would never remove somebody's solar for speeding unless it's completely unreasonable. Like, you know, that a bot is doing it. Yeah. But yeah. And I think that getting a variety of data quality measures and then using some sort of scoring system and trying to be consistent with that is, is what I like to do. Yeah. And I think that makes the most sense, quite honestly. And so here's my next question. This one, where does, where does ownership lie in terms of who's responsible for data quality? Is it a sample company? Is it the full service market researcher like yourself? Is it whoever designed the questionnaire? Is it the client? Where does the ownership lie? That is, uh, you know, um, okay, this is going to be like a four hour long podcast now because (laughs) (laughs) yeah, 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 because uh, honestly, this is my, uh, this is my big thing. So the simple answer is, every person is responsible for their piece, right? Uh, For the quality of their piece for me. And I'm going to get to that in a second, but I really uh, wish that we as an industry were better at policing ourselves because so, you know, the thing is, you know, we start with the questionnaire, right? I mean, so we have a questionnaire, we have an outline, et cetera. And a lot of times, you look at these outlines of questionnaires and there's 400 questions or something. And like, and it's like, okay, there's no one who would possibly do this. And I don't think we police ourselves as an industry on, so starting with interview length, back in the days of telephone, we used to, so in my early days, I didn't work for PNG, but I uh, did a lot of their work. And uh, quite frankly, even then I thought they were just a great, it was a great learning process, they audited every single survey uh, that they did. And so you would have to uh, spend hours in listening, monitoring surveys with with the client. And so you heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews and uh, you could see where people, you know, like a certain point where people's interest would start to wane. And, you know, they, and at some point they were no longer interested in the survey and PNG actually did something. I thought that was really cool. They did, they put all the, all the questions that were most important to them. They put up in the front of the survey and then things that, ah, this is a good to know. They put those in the back. And if they, and if you got past the stuff that they really needed to know, they took that, that survey. 
And they, and, but I think part of that was because they, they did so much monitoring of, you know, like the, of their, the surveys that they did, that they knew that there was a point where in the, and, you know, people have a certain attention span. And once you pass that, you better be careful about how you analyze that data because, you know, people just, they lose interest at some point. And so I would say starting there, that this is a, if I have a, a podium question or a podium stance, I really wish as an, uh, as an industry that we would start, you know, saying, okay, look, we're only going to do surveys that are seven minutes long. That's it. And, and, and that's it, right? I mean, I think the data quality would go up, uh, you know, a thousand percent and it would really make us think about, okay, what do we need to know? And a lot of times, and, and honestly, that's what I like about where I work is we always try to bring clients back to what is your business question? What are we trying to answer here? And when they go off topic and say, well, you know, so-and-so wants to know this, we try really hard to put them back and say, but is that answering your business question? Well, no, but let's answer the business question. And I really wish we would focus on things like that. So I would say to it for a start, if we want good quality data, I think we need to stop abusing respondents. So that's one thing. And that, as I said, I think that's should be an industry-wide initiative. And we have never been really good as an industry uh, pulling together and policing ourselves and doing a good job of policing ourselves. I, so overall quality, I think, belongs with yeah. the industry and with us as individual members. So then as you go down uh, the line, I think in terms of providing an interesting, you know, questionnaire, I think that's up to us, uh, the people who write it. You know, I know that we have to get certain questions in there. Some of them may not be that exciting, but we can take care to make sure that the way that we frame questions is concise that they're not confusing, that someone will actually read this and say, I know exactly what you're asking, and that we're not asking things that are out of the realm of someone's experience. And I think we did that a lot where we ask or use language that might be out of the, I remember one time, and I mean, it's, it's I, the, the words used more often, but there was a survey where, you know, they used the word coin. Uh, and, and, we, and we said, why don't you just say too sweet? And they refused to change it. And it's like, but, and of course, we had people who had no clue what we were trying to say on that. And, and it's, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, we can do things to make it easier for respondents, for somebody who doesn't have to consult a dictionary, you know, whether, well, it's easier now because you just type on what does coin mean online. But, uh, <laughs> but I think there, um, and, uh, and in terms of reporting, I mean, obviously that's on us as well. We need to make sure that, you know, the, uh, what we're doing, it's accurate, that we're accurately reflecting what we're, we're seeing in the data. Uh, but in terms of sample, and this is again, one of my big, uh, one of my big things, I really think, let me, I, I guess going back, I honestly, I would hate to be in the sample business. I, I would, <laughs> but, the, but the reason is because as I said at the beginning, I, I think that good research has to start with good sample. And because if your sample frame is bad, you're going to have bad data. And so, I mean, you know, being in the sample industry these days, it's, it's tough. I mean, there is, uh, you know, in the online world, I think a lot of people just expect everything to be super inexpensive and cheap and 
you know, I don't think people really think about the cost of creating panels, the cost of maintaining panels. Um, and there are some really bad panels out there. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, you know, there's really no good way to know who has a good panel or not without trying them. And, you know, and a lot of times the quality of a panel comes through very, very, very quickly. And so finding, and there's a lot of people who compile sample, and, and I think it's tough uh, finding the sources in the mix uh, that works and where you think that, you know, where you get to the point where you say, okay, I think we have a good mix of, of people here and, you know, a good mix of respondents. It's we have a broad uh, recruiting method that was employed here and this looks good. I think it's difficult to come up with that. And I, I, I it's tough and I, I know it's tough. Uh, now that said, though, um, yeah. you know, as a buyer, when I buy sample, I kind of look at it like a, um, well, okay, it's not like buying a refrigerator, but, uh, you know, but when I buy a refrigerator, I don't want to ch uh, check the refrigerant levels every week, right? And it's kind of the same with, you know, sample. When I buy sample, I don't want to be responsible for the quality of those respondents. I think that when it's your product, that should be on you. And 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 so I, I think we all have to help with policing that. But I really think that, you know, if it is your product, you know, it's something that you need to stand by. And, uh, you know, I, I actually had this conversation this week with another company and it's like, I, I don't want to be responsible for your respondents. That, that's not my role. Well, you said a lot there. I agree with everything you said. We're all responsible for it. It's hard to manage a panel. Um, panel should own the quality of their product. Andrew, I bet you disagreed with all of that. Did you? Did you disagree <laughs> with everything? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I I think that you know you really hit the nail on the head, um, especially from that you know buyer and partner relationship which you know is quite literally that's terry and i's relationship right that's how we know each other um you know we are ultimately responsible yeah i in talking about the questionnaire and everything i can't control if the um refrigerator is set to the coldest setting and then you leave the doors open and that's going to be the equivalent of a 45 minute loi with 28 exactly. openings um, I can't control that, but I better be able to control whether or not the refrigerator lasts for five years and whether or not, you know, when you, I don't know, you know, use a crisper drawer that everything inside there isn't dripping wet, right? You know, th there's a certain level of responsibility around what is being sent um, that absolutely does fall to the panel provider. Um, and, and we can work together as, you know, as much as possible to say, hey, look, you know, exactly like what you said, Terry, and we don't have this problem with MMR, but, you know, saying, look, this eighth open end, you really got to take into account that it's the eighth one. And if people are stop answering well, then maybe that's not as much on us. But 
to make sure that we've done our due diligence and we do this a lot at EMI to make sure that from the start, the panels that we're bringing to your work, that we've tested them ourselves um, and that we believe them to be good quality based not only on you know research into how do you recruit, how do you incent, what is the you know panel experience, um, you know even just what's the like the user experience. Does their portal work well? Is it nice to look at? How many emails do they send? Um, email invitations do they send? Things like that. Um, it is on us to make sure that we're providing a positive experience. And I think you know, where you started with all of this, Terry, talking about you know, the, the very first thing you talked about was making sure that the surveys were interesting and that they weren't too long. And I think that's, you know, no matter what human beings we get into the mix, if they're not having a positive experience, they're not going to give us good data. Exactly. But and so we look into, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I was going to say, and I think that's important too, is I, I think that, you know, where we fall down as an industry is that we look at respondents as a commodity and we need to stop thinking that they are a commodity. These are people who are willing to give their opinions and, you know, are willing to help us out. And we really need to stop abusing them. And, and it really is. And I mean, you'll always have bad players. I mean, it's just going to happen. But I think for the most part, the people who sign up, they really want to say something. and But they don't want to say it in 40 minutes, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. And I think, too, that, you know, repeated abuse of an abuse may be a strong word or it might be appropriate, depending on how bad the, some of the research is. But, you know, a panel can can really change over time depending on, you know, are they getting paid $1 for this 20-minute survey? Are they receiving 30 emails a day? Um, you know, are they getting disqualified from 20 of the, you know, 25 surveys that they're trying to take in that, you know, however, in however long that particular person takes to take 25 surveys? That, I think more so than anything else, is how you can end up with certain panels that have different quality, quality in the sense of we're getting bad open ends, we're getting failed logic traps, things like that. And especially too, you know, we talk about the term, you know, a professional respondent, you know, someone who's taking one survey every day or two surveys every day or something like that. And they're perhaps, and, and I don't think we've talked about this yet, but they're answering screening questions dishonestly and answering other questions dishonestly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, that when that honesty component erodes is when you can have bad respondents coming in. And so that's something that we definitely try to keep track of when we're deciding, you know, from what panels to source for the EMI custom blends. But I, I think you're absolutely right, particular to the, because all of that, research into the panels themselves should fall to us, the panel providers, right? And in and almost every panel company, by the way, and every any panel supplier, even if you are the one actually doing the recruiting itself and the management itself, you probably have more than one panel asset, right? And so I think that everyone should be doing as good of a job as they can 
of monitoring the quality of those actual assets and, and making sure that they're still providing good respondents from the start. Because I want to make sure, to continue the analogy, that I'm giving you a good refrigerator so that I don't have to figure out how to be the best refrigerator repairman <laughs> be. Right. right. And, and I think that that's something that, you know, you never want to have to be in that situation, but that's also a role that we as sample providers, we better be able to, to play that role when it's the, um, you know, the Thanksgiving Turkey is defrosting, you know, uh, three days too early, <laughs> if you will, um, you know, in the stakes are high, you know, we have to be able to fix issues that may come, um, from the products themselves. So yeah, th that's kind of my take on it, Brian. I think if hopefully that added what you were looking for. Absolutely. I think, I think Terry was right. And that we could talk about data quality for hours and hours. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. And, and again, and going back to something that Andrew said here, and I know we're running over here, but it is, uh, you know, I, I really, I think the biggest thing is we need again, Stop treating people as a commodity. Pay them fairly for what they're doing. And uh, I think you'll see quality improve as well. Well, I agree, Terry. And I think that if we did those seven-minute questionnaires, like you mentioned, and we have more empathy for respondents, we'll, go, we'll grow our respondent universe. People will have a higher response rate. And it's just it'll have a cumulative effect of the quality. It's not just on that individual survey. It'll grow the ecosystem entirely, I think. Agreed. Let's move on to some fun stuff. Terry, can you stick around for a couple of minutes? We'll ask you a couple of fun questions. Yeah, absolutely. All right. This is our 4P section. Andrew, <laughs> you can jump in on this too if you want. I'm in. I'm in. Our marketing mix. We took the 4Ps. Um, we've switched them up, especially during the pandemic. We've got a couple of new ones. And Terry's going to answer a couple of them. And first one's Perform. Um, what is something that people don't know about you? Do you have a hidden talent? Uh, so this is the thing about me is uh, I'm not afraid of anything uh, except heights. I'm terrified of heights. But I, I mean, just in terms of doing something, I'll dive into anything. So I have no real hidden talents. I just have a lot of hidden, how would I, mediocrities might be the way to say it. So <laughs> I'll paint, but I'm not very good at it. I'll sing, but I'm not very good at it. I'll do, I'll do whatever. I'm just not very good at it. So uh, there is no hidden talent. And I think everyone has seen at least one of my mediocre talents uh, at some point. Maybe your hidden talent is you're not, you're fearless. Yeah, <laughs> that could be it. Yeah, I am pretty, I, and I was going to say, that is the one thing I am pretty fearless. I'll do anything except if it involves heights again. It's, yeah. well, and there's nothing wrong with being a Renaissance man either, you know? <laughs> well, that's kind. <laughs> That in and of itself is a talent. Absolutely. Andrew, are you going to share a hidden talent? Have we done this with you before? I don't think we have, actually. Ah, good. Oh, then you've got to answer. Too. So, okay, so a hidden talent. Um, people who know me from college probably know this. Um, but I don't know if anyone at the office actually knows this. Um, I'm a cellist. Did you know that I played the cello, Brian? No, I knew you were talented musically when you tuned a um, a children's guitar at a Christmas party once, <laughs> <laughs> and you had a tuning app on your phone. So I knew you were talented, <laughs> but I didn't know you played the cello. Yeah, yeah, I've been playing the cello for almost sixteen years, um, and I was first chair in um, Xavier's Symphony. Wow, that's awesome! Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, doesn't surprise me. 
Next P is pandemic. What are some funny things that you were doing during the quarantine? This is my new favorite P. I have listed off probably a dozen different weird things that I've done during the pandemic, including being addicted to marbles, um, wanting to wager on marbles, and um, going on too many walks a day, and um, watching Tag. We've talked about Tiger King way too much. Harry, is there anything odd or something that you found yourself doing during the pandemic that's a little bit different than normal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It used to be that I would wake up and say, what am I going to wear today? And now <laughs> I wake up and say, how much am I going to wear today? It's uh, very, very different. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I rarely leave the house now. And it's not uh, it, it's not that I'm afraid of uh, catching. It's just that we've been uh, exceptionally busy during the, the pandemic, which is uh, a bit odd for us. But yeah, it's been. And I think I'm kind of defaulting back to more infantile behaviors. You know, like today, I just had the the urge to just like spin around in a circle until I dropped over. I don't know where that came from. I didn't do it, but I'm still contemplating it. So, <laughs> yeah, quarantine brain—that's a new term. <laughs> that's why I don't let my toddler sit in my office chair. So you have an advantage over him. You can get a lot more centrifugal force in your home office. <laughs> that's true. Spin it around. Andrew, I know oh, I know you pretty well, Andrew. I bet you've done some some odd things during the pandemic, despite having two young children. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I I have a lot of weird hobbies as a baseline. <laughs> um, I'm very willing to acknowledge that. But so at, as you know, I'm I'm really into gardening, right? Because a lot of my hobbies around uh, revolve around food and around like doing interesting things with food and getting food from weird places and you know, so on and so forth. Right. Um, but so anyway, so my gardening efforts are like nuts now, right? Because I'm just at home. I can go out on my lunch break, yada, yada, yada. So I was really not happy with the quality of my compost this year. <laughs> um, as from my, my efforts last year. So I started vermicomposting. Do you guys know what that is? Never heard of it. Vermicomposting. So what it means is that I currently have 4,000 worms living in my garage. Oh, wow. I have, yeah, I have this huge worm farm um, set up in a 35-gallon tubs um there's they're stacked i did drill a bunch of holes in them it was really a kind of a fun diy project to like get it going but yeah it's so now i have a worm farm and it's really cool because you know typically if i'm like composting kitchen scraps and i would put them in the tumbler outside or something you know they're ready to use like next year in that many worms will eat a head of lettuce in like 10 days and then it's just completely composted. Wow, that's crazy. So it, yeah, and that's really weird. I never thought that that would happen. I'm surprised that I, and especially my wife, were not, didn't have, neither of us had a moment where we stopped and we're like, are you really about to order 4,000? Like, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. You should not do this. Um, but here we are, here we are. It's, it's going well. It's really cool to be honest with you, but I don't think that would have happened without the stir craziness yeah. of pandemic. Wow. And you can, uh, you can have like a bait store on the weekend as well. So <laughs> <laughs> you can make some money from this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I love to go fishing too. So it's dual purpose. <laughs> 
win, win, win. It's like environmentally friendly. It's, it's awesome. It's healthy. That's awesome. Last P, pride. What's your biggest source of pride, biggest accomplishment? This could be personal, professional, anything you want to talk about. Okay, uh, so I really don't. Uh, okay, this is. I'm going to sound like an idiot, but I'm really not a prideful person. But there is one thing that I do. Uh, so I am. I love food. I love food so much. I come from a family of like uh, food hit. I, I mean, everyone in my family just loves food, and uh, so it's not really a pride thing. It is much more of a. I don't know. It's like a. It's like a daily personal accomplishment. But I will never ever make a plate of food even if i'm by myself that does not look good it looks <laughs> good <laughs> always like visually it's pleasing to it the is, eye, yeah oh yeah always visually appealing and i don't know why i do it but i it's just something i do and it it just makes me happy all the time every time i eat a meal that's awesome so are you talking about like garnishing or is it like the color scheme or is it the plate? What What is the kind of the key? Yeah, you know, that's the thing. It, it changes every time. I was uh, I was in uh, – my sister and I were in Turkey several years ago. We uh, we did like like a touristy thing around like a – but we drove – we were in a bus that drove around, you know, like different places in Turkey. And we were with this couple from California. And even on the buffet, the guy and the couple would say, I can't wait to see his plate every day. Because it's so different, yeah. And yeah, so just you know, because you know, because you, you you know, you're on a bus, you have the buffet meals, things like that. And so it could be, it could be colors. It depends on you know what I'm working with. But uh, yeah, it might, I will always have a good looking plate of food. That that's one of the best answers we've ever had on this show. I I think so, Andrew. I bet I know this. You, your turn for pride. Oh gosh. Okay, I want to know what you would have selected for me now. Oh, you'd have. I would think you'd pick your children. I mean, you'd pick Sterling and and you'd pick your family some way. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I actually was going to do that for the purpose of this one. So we, as of three days ago, um, the training is not there, but we successfully went number two in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> process. To uh, no longer, and, and for anyone who has had kids or has toddlers, they learn so fast, so many things so fast. And this was one thing that was just not computing for Sterling. Yeah. You know, he got really quickly, okay, I shouldn't go poo in my diaper. And I cannot even tell you how many times that led to him like running in from the other room with no pants on saying like, poo, 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 poo. <laughs> you have to go find it. And he was so pumped because he didn't go in his diaper. Well, we, we finally got him to go in his little potty. And I am right now, especially during, you know, pandemic, I've been working from home for like 110 days with a two year old and a five month old infant. It is the small things that are getting us all through. Yeah. Um, and he was so excited and it took a lot of, um, you know, effort from us to kind of teach him how to do that. So, yeah, that that's a good one. I'll go with that one for now because the other stuff was going to be like fishing related or God forbid, I might have said something work related. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Andrew, you also just got promoted. That's that's news now. So congratulations. Ah, uh, congrats. Yeah. 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 You, could, you have a you have a long list of things you should be pride prideful about. <laughs> well, I think we should shut it down. We are way over time. And so if you're still listening, I really appreciate especially I appreciate you, Terry, coming in and t- tackling a tough talk topic to talk about, data quality. And um, it's it's awesome to hear what all your company goes through in terms of data quality. It's very thorough, um, comprehensive list. And I want to thank you so much for joining the podcast. And Andrew, you as well. Great. Thank you, guys. You made this fun. You made it easy. And uh, hopefully I haven't offended anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no way. That'll be, that'll be my job later. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks so much, Terry. You're welcome. Cool. Thank you, Terry, um, for joining us um, again. I think that was a good conversation. By the way, this was an honor for me. I've said this a lot lately, but um, I'm not sure if you all knew this, but MMR Research Associates was started in 1999. That's And it was started because um, the owner was an MMR graduate from the University of Georgia. And I think a lot of the early team were Georgia grads. I started at the University of Georgia in 1999, and I knew Mark, and I know some of these guys. Um, who either Bill Dank and Bruce Olson, who are the senior partners, and I think they're the co-owners now. I've known them for quite a while, but I knew them when they were starting the company. And so it's from a personal perspective, it's cool to see those guys be successful and build such an awesome brand. And they've expanded it recently with MMR Live, and they continue to hire Georgia grads. And so um, getting to talk to Terry about another passion of mine, which is data quality, was just um incredible for me and um, love the interview. Um, Andrew, any other thoughts that we haven't already talked about? No, I think that's a great summary. Um, you know, my highlights are, you know, the same as when we discussed before the interview. I, I just, I think it's it's really great to get to know Terry's personality as well. Um, yeah. One of my favorite people to work with. Um, yeah. And I love that part about what we're doing here, you know, just getting to meet people from across the industry. Um, Market research certainly has some um, some characters, and I hope that as soon as our shelter in place is over, I have the opportunity to eat with Terry and see him put together a beautiful plate of food and a beautiful sample plan. Yes, as always. We should just end with that. Um, that was terrible. <laughs> well, well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to Terry Crawford. Um, from MMR Research Associates. You can find more information about them at mmrresearch.com. There's the double R in the middle, which is hard to remember when I type it. And um, listen to us and rate us. And I'd love any feedback and telecast at emi-rs.com. And thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.